Hey everybody, welcome to another Ithaca Bound podcast episode. I'm your host, Andrew Schiestel, joining you today from Tunisia. And this is the podcast where we explore history and mythology in the Mediterranean basin. Today I'm joined with Dr. Julietta Steinhauer for a conversation about the former Roman province of Asia. Dr. Steinhauer is a lecturer at the University College London, based in the UK. Her research focuses on religion, religious minorities, and migration in the Aegean during the Hellenistic period and the early Roman period. She is author of the book, Religious Associations in the Post-Classical Polis, which was published by Franz Seiner Verlag. And she is co-editor of the forthcoming book, Beneath the Surface, Renegotiating Gender Agency, which is scheduled for release in 2022 and will be published by Brill. And Dr. Steinhauer joins the show today from the UK. Welcome to the show, Julieta. Thank you very much, Andre. Thank you for that lovely introduction. You are welcome. It is wonderful to speak with you today, Julieta. So uh, to create sufficient background and context for the conversation that we're going to have today, can you share what the Roman province of Asia was Absolutely. So um, the Roman province of Asia is actually the former Pergamene kingdom, so the kingdom of the Attalid kings of the Hellenistic period. And geographically speaking, that includes the areas of Mysia, Lydia and Caria, which probably won't tell you very much. But if you think about modern Turkey and if you think about the west coast of Turkey, all these beautiful places where you'd go on holiday, um, Bodrum, Izmir and so on. Um, this is basically what the Roman province of Asia used to be. And um, in that, uh, so so what what's the time period in which the, it was a, a officially a province of Rome? So um, the Romans um, had um, been friendly with the Pergamene kings, with the Attalids. Um, throughout the later Hellenistic period, um, and they've actually supported each other. So when the last Pergamene king, um, Atlas II, died in the third, sorry, died in 133 BCE, he bequeathed his kingdom to the Romans. So in theory, the province um, was set in 133 BCE. However, um, we have a little um, episode here whereby. Um, probably an illegitimate son of Atlas II called Aristonicus claimed the throne um, and so challenged the Romans' inheritance. So basically um, only a few years later then, in 129, the Romans properly established the province of Asia. So that would be 129 BCE. Um, and this would be um, a Roman province up until uh, late antiquity. Okay. So in that period, so in the second century, maybe we can start there, second century BCE. Yes. What, uh, and I know they would have probably been speaking Latin, the, the, the Romans, and we're speaking English right now, and you know, let's just you know, roll with it. Um, uh, so what would, uh, um, you know, roll with it in terms of going back and forth with the, uh, the terminology, um, what would they have called uh, this province in that period of time? Well, so the Romans would have called it Asia. Um, so this would be the name that they would give um, the province. However, um, the idea of Asia or Asia is actually an older Greek word. And in fact, the whole province was 
mostly Greek speaking when the Romans took over and many of the Romans who would um, move there or live there would also be able to speak and write Greek so most of the evidence say the inscriptions from this area is in fact in Greek uh, language and writing um, but yeah so um, to the people there um, Asia is of course it's it's a um, artificial creation by the Roman government, so to speak, by the Roman Senate, um, and it's not a natural um, border. So therefore, you will have a variety of people from different ethnic backgrounds living together here. We have the Carians, which have their own language and own writing. We have the Lydians and Mysians. So we have a lot of different people living together under the umbrella term of, of Asia, um, which is um, really something that is important for the Romans in terms of their uh, governmental practices in order to administratively lead this area. Okay. Organize it. Oh, okay, yeah. So they would have called it a Asia, and then that, that is a der derivative of a Greek, a Greek term, and that's where we get the term uh, in modern-day modern Asia. Absolutely, yeah. So if you look at it uh, from a um, um, geographical point of view, it's of course Asia Minor. This also is something that the Greeks shaped, this idea of Asia Minor, this peninsula that is sort of reaching into the Mediterranean, which is only one part of modern Asia. But um, the idea of this being the smaller part, the Asia Minor, Asia Minor, is coming up in the first century um, BCE the Roman uh, geographer, or actually Greek Roman, Greco-Roman geographer Strabo talks about this being the smaller part of Asia, and this is where the idea of Asia Minor comes from, which is a little bit more than the Roman province of Asia, but it's sort of this area of Asia that leads um, towards the really um, major um, areas, such as Mesopotamia, Armenia, and so on and so forth. So it's sort of the entry point into the bigger Asia. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So I want to clarify that distinction, um, Julieta. So, is there a uh, a difference um, from a geographical perspective uh, between Asia? Again, we're talking in the context of history here. Of course, we're talking in this period. Um, is there is there uh, when Strabo is writing about it uh, as an example? Um, is there a distinction between the geographic ter territory of the province of the Roman province of Asia, and then Asia Minor. Yes, there is. So the Roman province of Asia is basically just one part, maybe perhaps, say, a good third of what we would call Asia Minor. And Asia Minor would be um, the whole sort of stretch of modern Turkey, whereas the province of Asia would only be mainly the coastal um, regions, plus some of the Greek islands, um, or now, nowadays Greek islands. And it would stop um, in the north at the Dardanelles and then to the Aegean and to the uh, north of the Mediterranean. And then what um, comes beyond that are further Roman provinces. So if you look, if you were to look at a map of Asia Minor, you would find that within that geographical descriptor of Asia Minor fit the Roman province of Asia plus the Roman province of Bithynia and Pontus, Cappadocia, Cilicia, uh, Lycia and Pamphylia and Phrygia. So you have a whole bunch of uh, Roman provinces put into that Asia Minor, um, but perhaps the most important and wealthiest one is Asia of these. 
Okay, that's in, that's interesting. Um, and I'm not going to um, I'm not going to Google it, you know, an image right, right now. Although that would probably be easy to do, but that's you know, then then, then it's going to get a little louder in the background. I do do that sometimes. Um, but uh, so if we're talking about the Anatolian uh, Peninsula, so Asia Asia, Min Asia Minor. Um, okay, so let's let's go let's let's go back to a Asia. So the Roman province of Asia. How far east in in the Anatolian Peninsula would that have been demarcated to? Um, so it's not. The borders are not 100% clear, but mm -hmm. Phrygia would be the point where it would then stop. If we think about Ankara, perhaps, that, um, that would be already Galatia. So we have, um, say, halfway through, mm -hmm. if that makes sense. Sure. So up into the middle of the, uh, <laughs> of the peninsula. Yeah, that's fine. Yeah, that's helpful. That's helpful. I think I, I, can, I can visualize it. Everybody listening can visualize that. Yeah, but it's good that you bring it up because it is important. There's a distinction, of course, between the um, the prosperous towns um, of the um, um, western coast of Asia Minor and the um, um, hinterland, so to speak, of Anatolia, you know, um, where a culture developed differently and the Romans, or the Greeks and the Romans, barely touched this hinterland until the first century. So it was rather a later developer. Um, coming with the Romans. So yeah, it's important to, to sort of keep that in mind. It's a little bit like um, in modern Turkey now that there is a distinction to be made between the agricultural sort of culture of the, of the inland and then the, the uh, uh, let's see, um, coastal towns, um, which really prospered um, partly through those um, um, farmers and, 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 and producers in the hinterlands. Okay, yeah, and, and let's let's certainly spend a little bit more time on the commerce side then, because you've mentioned that a, a, a couple times. The the um, that that sounds like it was a, a prosperous um, uh, uh, region, um, province for for for, uh, uh, for Rome. Um, but before we go before we before we go there, um, you'd mentioned uh, something stood out for me, and it was the I used the term bequeathing. So there was a um, a predecessor. I, I believe, uh, in you know, clarifying your your response, I believe you said basically a a king, uh, a previous king, um, uh, bequeathed the uh, the uh, I'll use the term the, the the state. There could be a different term that can be used uh, to to Rome. Um, what, what's the? How would you summarize the circumstances ar around that? It 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 it's, that hasn't come up. I can't recall that really coming up or coming up too often where. A, um, a, a one kingdom bequeaths the you know their their um, their kingdom or state to another another state, especially one that seems to be very far um, away. If you look at if you look at the you know the the the, the capital of Rome uh, in in Rome. So can you speak about the circumstances? What what scholars know about why that king bequeathed uh, the the kingdom to uh, to Rome? Well, it's not 100% clear why he did it, and um, scholars are still arguing about it. This last Attilid king, we don't know very much about him, he reigned for only a very short while, but what we do know is that um, um, overall the, the, the Attilid kingdom, which is one of the um, successor kingdoms of Alexander um, the Great, um, um, we know that they 
are somewhat an artificial kingdom and they only prospered really through the help of Rome, um, especially in the second century, but also before that. So they've always been allies of um, Rome and therefore they um, fared well. So there is this connection and this is perhaps the best explanation to why um, um, the last king would then um, give the kingdom to uh, Rome rather than finding someone, adopting someone else to, um, yeah, um, to, to, to inherit it. Um, but as I said, it's not entirely clear why this, um, why he, he took that decision. And from what I said earlier, um, the fact that um, someone came up and actually claimed the throne, Aristonicus, um, not everybody seems to have been happy with that. And it was uh, disputed. So it's not a sort of neat um, um, process um, in which that happened. But I guess overall, um, this made it a bit easier for the Romans to, to go in there because in the end they sent their first um, proconsular governor to um, Pergamum, to the, to the capital, um, and he would then, um, yeah, um, well, make sure that the Romans gained from the province what they like to do, a lot of money, a lot of taxes, but also um, here we have someone um, who then comes into a system that is already established. So the Pergamene kings would have already had their taxation system and the Romans would take over most of this, um, which would be a, a handy thing to do so that this was already organized, sort of the processes of how people were taxed and how taxes were collected and so on and so forth. So this is um, comes in quite handy for the Romans to have this um, kingdom um, that they can then simply take, well, simply, but can take over and, um, yeah, transform into a province. Yeah, and in uh, that first, or I guess it's second century B BCE, um, I think you mentioned 129 is when they officially, mm -hmm. it officially became a, a province. Did the, did the concept of uh, proconsuls -con pro exist at that, at, at that point in, in time? And, and if, 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 if so, um, or regardless, if, if, if so, or if not, can you speak about when proconsuls, uh, began to govern this area and, and is a proconsul considered the same as a, as a, as a governor of, of a province or is, or are they different offices? So the proconsular um, governor is the governor of the province. He would have helped, um, have, uh, sorry, he would have gotten help, um, but um, he would be the one who is in charge of the province in terms of uh, legal um, disputes and, and looking after it and organising it and just being there for a year and, um, initially and making sure that um, the province is run according to what the Roman Senate wanted. Although this is of course not always true because the Roman um, governors famously also um, work to their own pockets. So, however, for, for um, Asia, we have um, the first governor, um, Manius Aquilius, who um, again was um, sent there to look after the province but was also seen as quite greedy and being someone who was um actually also helping himself to quite a lot of pocket money as um we know this area was as i said earlier quite wealthy um partly from the farming but a lot of rural work um was uh, happened here as well so textile production um and so we have a situation here where a man is being sent the 
the governor is being sent to, to um, Asia and is left in charge. However, what um, happened uh, uh, next is that actually uh, we have um, someone who's threatening this sort of province, uh, which would be Mithridates. I don't know if you wanted to go there um, just yet, but someone um, from a neighboring kingdom from Pontus, um, who again was somewhat involved with the Roman army, uh, with the Romans, who would then try to um, invade Asia and make the Greek cities of Asia Minor aware of the fact that the Romans are actually um, bleeding them dry, so to speak, in terms of um, their high taxation um, among the local populace. So what we have here is that um, it is Thinking about the whole of the Roman Empire, the the um, province of Asia is only, I think, the seventh, perhaps, um, province um, that Rome establishes. So um, here we still have a little bit of um, trial and error and the surrounding areas, the client kingdoms of Asia Minor that I mentioned earlier, are sometimes helpful, but not always helpful. So there's a lot of rebellion here as well. Um, in the end, it leads to um, the first, um, what we call the first Mithridatic War in 88 to 85 BCE, where um, the Roman Senate actually declared war um, um, because Mithridates VI, this is um, of the Kingdom of Pontus, actually, um, tried to annex the neighboring kingdom, Bithynia and Cappadocia, which would be around Asia, and then also goes into Asia. And he then, and this is basically where I come back to the idea of the Roman governor being quite greedy. Um, he executed the Roman governor Manius Aquilius um, by apparently, according to Apiant, um, pouring molten gold down his throat as a symbol of him being so greedy and killed him with that, well, executed him with that. Um, and um, he also sort of made that statement to show to the Greek residents or the, the, the um, cities in Asia Minor um, that it's not okay how the Romans rule there. And this then leads to um, a big massacre by which the um, Roman, uh, sorry, the local populace killed an estimated 80,000 to 150,000 Italians and Romans. Um, so it is not an easy sailing, a plain sailing, even though the province itself was given to Rome. There's a lot of other people involved, so to speak, who also have an interest here. And the way that Rome at this stage rules the, or governs the province is also um, not something that the local populace is entirely happy with, at least at the beginning. This will change over time as some we might explore later, but at the beginning there clearly is antipathy against the Romans um, here from the local populace. Yeah, and the, um, these, the, the, the events you described, they're associated to the material disagreement that ended up occurring back in Rome between Marius and Sulla, right? Yes. So. While all this plays out in Asia, there's obviously also the civil wars going on in Rome. Um, and um, so Asia is a little bit of a playing field for all these Roman internal struggles. And you have 
um, apart from um, Sulla, you also have others who are being who are interested here. We have Pompey who comes in later, then Antony later. So Asia is always sort of on the wrong side, so to speak, um, when it comes to Rome. So they support um, Fidates initially, the sixth, and then um, Pompey later, Antony. So they are not um, perhaps treated well. They are perhaps yeah putting their um, um, eggs in the wrong basket, so to speak, at least um, for a while, and therefore they are being sort of punished by very high taxes and finance, quite a lot of the um, civil um, civic wars. Um, so there is definitely um, an involvement here, but um, um, yeah, it's, 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 it's an interesting um, um, sort of playing field for these larger Roman um, internal struggles absolutely yeah and that um for those listening um professor federico santangelo of newcastle university has been on the show um a few times i think now i think he's been on the show three three times if i recall two or three times and uh we actually covered uh an episode on sula uh before and also an episode on marius so um if if anyone wants to dive into and understand um what those conflicts were from from their their perspective and how that led to a um, a civil war in uh, in in Rome in the first uh, century. There's uh, episodes that were done on the podcast um, that are findable. Um, okay, so I I would like to cover because we're doing more of an overview um, episode and probably several episodes could be dedicated to some of the stuff that you're describing there, um, Julieta. Um, but I do want to make sure we wrap up because you said that this province went to around uh, late an, end of late antiquity in that in that range. Um, so I do want to cover if, if it can be summarized at some point the the um, if it can be summarized at some point the end of the the conflict. But before we um, so be, but before we get there, uh, can you describe so? There's it's certainly uh, disparate. Um, there's various conflicts. Uh, it sounds like at times in the in the in the province. Can you can you summarize if it's if it's um, possible to summarize over several centuries what Rome's general position was? Um, you know, first first couple centuries BCE, maybe the first few centuries CE. What their what their um, approach to uh, the, the governing um, from from the various inhabitants in in asia the the roman province of asia there those individuals language and re religion what was what was rome's um tolerance or stance around uh disparate religions and uh languages that would have existed in in uh, in the province that's actually a very good question so um what we see in asia is that um for the most part because it is such a diverse as i said earlier a diverse sort of populace in terms of its ethnicity and the, the, the religious culture. Um, and the Romans, um, to an extent, seem to embrace that. So we have a lot of involvement of uh, Romans um, or Italians in local religious cults. So they really embrace um, certain um, cults and even up to the Roman um, uh, proconsular governor who would uh, become priest in a local cult in Pergamon, for example. Um, so it seems to be a case where um, there is, well, for, uh, yeah, perhaps um, 
one can even say um, uh, support of, of, of um, local religions, at least to an extent. And what we also see um, is that um, these major cities of Asia Minor, such as Ephesus and Smyrna, they will also host quite large Jewish uh, diaspora um, communities, and they would also be able to, to flourish there. So there doesn't seem to be uh, much of a conflict here. And um, Ephesus, for example, the famous um, temple of Artemis here, the specific Artemis um, that is being worshipped here, will continue to be worshipped. Um, and the even in Pergamon, the cult of um, Dionysius, Dionysius, sorry, Pergamon, which would have been associated with the former Pergamene rulers, would still flourish later on. So what we see is actually that um, it seems to be that it's becoming more diverse and more enriched over time. Um, we get the um, Egyptian gods coming in. Um, I think even Hadrian supports um, a, a large temple of per um, in Pergamon of the Egyptian gods. So there seems to be um quite diverse religious culture that is being supported um or at least um left alone by the romans if you wish the one thing i need to say though is that obviously when the roman empire comes about the imperial cult is something that becomes a sort of very important tool for um, spreading um power in asia and um here we have quite a lot of um, evidence for um, local elite um, involvement in the cult or, or the aim to be involved in the imperial cult since the um, 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 local elite would um, really try to, to gain these positions which allowed them to then hold games in honor of the emperor and also the temples in honor of the emperor. And that would then be rewarded with um, um, the neocorrupt. So that means they um, these cities would become particularly um, dear to the emperor, if you wish. So there is sort of this um, aspect as well um, that you have um, everything going on. But then on top of this, there will also be the quite um, strictly organized imperial cult, um, which plays a huge role in the way in which the province, provincial cities especially, and the elites uh, see themselves and deal with, um, with um, local um, politics. Um, so, yeah, um, another point that I just wanted to, 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 to mention quickly is that mm -hmm. what we also see, see is that there's um, even more than just um, the local religions, but you have really close to the um, province of Asia, the Bosporan Kingdom here, um, and Armenia, where we have Zoroastrianism, so a very diverse range of um, religious beliefs and systems coming together. and within uh, the Bosporan Kingdom, especially in the first century CE, we see an interesting development. Um, here we find a lot of inscriptions referring to a god um, um, called Theos Hypsistos, which will be the most high god, um, which some scholars, Stephen Mitchell actually, has argued that this would be sort of a, an idea of pagan monotheism, that, um, that means that, that pagans here would try to create or worship a god in the style of a Jewish god or of a, of a monotheistic deity. So all of this is happening here. And um, 
yeah, it's it's actually um, an, a very religiously diverse area. Um, yeah. Yeah, I imagine it would be. And can you clarify, Julieta, can you expand on what the imperial cult was? Uh, <laughs> I think you would need a proper full episode on that to really clarify it. But the idea behind this is it's a little bit um, comparable to what has been around before in the Hellenistic kingdoms when we think about Alexander declaring himself as a god and then um, being worshipped as such, but also the um, uh, the Egyptian um, pharaohs that will then be replaced by the um, Ptolemies, by the um, Macedonian uh, kings, and also declare themselves as sort of god kings. So the idea here is that the Ro- for the Romans it's not a plain sailing either, because in the West this is not something people did. People would not see an emperor as a god so that would not work together from a western roman perspective however in the east um, and in asia in particular this is something that has happened before now there is a big question of course to what extent did these people really believe that the emperor was a god or to what extent it is more about an exchange of 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 goods so to speak so you worship the emperor and and honor the emperor and therefore you get uh, granted uh, certain rights and um and and wealth so it's a little bit of both i mean um so emperor worship really um was established properly um not with augustus but slightly later under claudius perhaps but under augustus we already have um emperor worship in the east so this is a big difference between Rome and the East. In the East, people really want to um, worship the emperor in a way they are used to worshiping, perhaps or or, or honoring earlier um, Hellenistic uh, kings. And um, we have uh, Augustus actually explicitly says that he does not want that in his Resgestae. He says he's actually um, um, made sure that his statues were removed um, from the temples and so on and so forth. So. Um, it's not a plain sailing. However, it then functions later on as a system by which, as I said, these honours were uh, given to to local elite who would be then in charge of running these cults, these new cults. So, for example, you'd have um, in Ankara um, a temple to Augustus and um, on the wall of this temple um, to Augustus, we would have the res gestae of the divine Augustus. So the, um, the deeds of the divine Augustus written into the wall of the temple. This is one of the um, monuments that are really important for us to understand Augustus and the way he saw himself, or he thought of himself as having saved the world and everything and restored the Republic. But this would be part of the temple. So what you can see is that the imperial cult really is a little bit of both. It has sort of a religious dimension, but at the same time, it also has a clearly political dimension. And this is what makes it so mm, crucial to the way in which um, the Romans try to mm, govern the province as well as on top of having an administrative uh, sort of um, governor in the province, you would also have the imperial cult, which from a sort of more perhaps psychological perspective would also make people um, aware of the fact that the, the emperor is everywhere, the Roman emperor is, you know, and you go and honour the Roman emperor in 
the temple and if you become a priest of that cult then this is a huge honor and you directly are sort of serving the emperor here so um this is something that is established really early actually asia i think is the the earliest province where we have a proper establishment of this cult and um it does somehow fit in with the uh, religious landscape that i've already described in the sense that um there's so many different gods and and deities and beliefs around that um it doesn't really make um, much of a problem. It becomes a problem later then, of course, when everybody has to um, sacrifice to the emperor and then we all know well what happens with the Jewish and the Christian communities which do not see or cannot acknowledge uh, that the emperor is a deity or a god. But at the beginning, also, I mean, like these are quite sort of smooth, um, well, there isn't really a hard difference between, so we have, say, a hero a human, a hero, and a god. Um, so a human can become a hero and a god in a way, um, if that makes sense. Probably doesn't, but um, from an ancient perspective, it should make sense. So you can be heroized after your death, and this is something that the imperial cult. So basically, if you think back to what happened to Augustus and Caesar, so Caesar would have been deified um, after his death, and this would be possible and the same then happens to Augustus who will be deified after his death and then it's Claudius who's the first well actually Caligula would claim or some authors claim that he pretended to be a god while alive and that was not that did not go down well with the Roman authors however then uh, Claudius would be the first one who would actually be sort of represented in statues and and, and so on as as a god um, but you can see it's not like from today to tomorrow, it's something that really develops slightly um, uh, over time. And um, you can see that in um, Asia Minor, this happens much earlier than anywhere else. Um, yeah, so. Yeah, yeah you've done, you did an excellent job uh, tackling what sounds like a big topic, um, Julieta, and expanding on it uh, in, inside, inside of the, uh, the time demarcation for this episode. Thank you. Um, I want to go, <laughs> you mentioned that it was a very prosperous province and I said I would go back to that item. So let's go back there. I, um, uh, let's go back there quickly and just cover that off. Um, what, what, what about this particular province? Because I think you said uh, Asia, the province of Asia, um, Rome's province of Asia was the seventh um, province at, at the given time. What about this particular province made it so, uh, so prosperous? I think um, <clears throat> above all it's the location because we have quite a few important harbour um, towns, um, harbour cities which um, uh, open up the whole market from the um, from Asia basically or actually the Silk Road so to speak to into the Aegean, Greece and um, Rome. So if you think about trade routes, um, luxury goods goods sorry luxury goods coming um, from arabia or so they would then go via these major trading cities such as um ephesus um and um this allows you to 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 to, to a i mean improve those products for example if you have um purple scent and then you have wool that comes from your hinterland you, you are able to 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 dye textiles um and, and and create textiles and can then ship them off to rome where there's a huge market for 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 example for purple dyed clothes um but also perfumes and um other um herbs and so on and so forth so 
the location is crucial. We have a lot of um, guilds here of um, professional um, uh, yeah, um, textile workers and, 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 and leather workers and so on and so forth. So we have quite a lot of, of that. So trade would be one of the major things that actually enrich these, uh, this province. Um, of course, you can then tax those traders as well. Um, and shipping is, of course, something where a lot of money is in. Um, you'd also have, um, at least in the, in the Greek period, I'm not entirely sure whether this is true for the Roman period as well, but a slave trade, so quite a lot of slaves were actually um, taken from um, the hinterlands of Asia Minor and, and shipped into Greece. Um, and then you would have the, the sort of exploitation, if you wish, of the hinterlands, where the farmers would be taxed quite heavily, but also their produce would then be sold. Um, on top of that, there were other goods such as marble and um, um, yeah, um, other sort of natural resources that would be uh, making this um, a very prosperous area. Um, yeah, I think that would be okay yeah okay so uh working our way towards wrapping up the dialogue today julietta um i want to cover the uh what the end result was the outcome of the um i believe there were wars um with uh you'd mentioned mithra Dadis, uh the sixth i might have the pronunciation a little bit <laughs> off of course mithra Dades. Uh, I'll do my best, of course. Um, and uh, so I want to cover that uh, so that that's not a cliffhanger. And then and then work our way to the kind of the end of the period and what happened with the province. Yes, perfect. Yes. So basically, Mithridates um, um, was eventually expelled. And um, the, um, after two more wars, so to speak, the second Mithridatic War, which is from 83 to 81 BCE, and then the third one from 73 to 63 BCE. But from then on, um, the province itself actually never had um, a legion. So it was um, one of those um ungarrisoned provinces um of the empire which is perhaps showing that there wasn't a big threat so to speak from the local populace to the romans um and the the what happens though is in 63 after um Mithridates was finally defeated is that Sulla reorganized the um, province and um sort of um um Divided it, it uh, divided it. Sorry, into eleven size districts, and um, we know of over three hundred cities, which are recognised communities here in Asia, which are all assigned to these uh, provinces. And um, the um, province, as I said earlier, I mean, initially the the, the locals were not too happy about the Roman, um, um, yeah, um, government, but but in the course of time, they actually. Um, worked with the Romans and, and I think it goes, as I said um, at some examples earlier as well, there's, it goes both ways. So the Romans like to live here and the locals like to live with the Romans. So there seems to be a fairly um, um, happy sort of cohabitation, so to speak. And um, what we can see is that actually this area becomes really important um, again after um, uh, the first century um, CE um, during the second century, which is quite interesting, actually. Um, so here we have, as I said earlier, the, 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 the Roman um, um, 
Empress Hadrian and others who, who heavily invest in this um, province. And during this time, we, we have a cultural development which is called the um, Second Sophistic. This is where um, a lot of Roman orators and writers um, come back to really revise Greek um, culture. And one of the main sort of spots where this happens is in Asia. Um, in um, the second century, for example, in Pergamum, we have the famous orator Aeneas Aristides, who lived 117 to 181 CE, and he um, himself um, might have been ill, we don't know. He definitely thinks he was ill, goes to Pergamum and incubates. That means he sleeps, he stays in the sanctuary of Asclepius in Pergamum, which is um, at that time perhaps the, the most important city of Asia Minor. He then um, writes the sacred tales, one of these a wonderful sort of report about his encounters with the god in that temple. And this becomes really, it's really high culture that's happening here. Um, furthermore, in that second century, we also have um, huge building programs. We have the, the, the famous um, um, library of Celsus being built in the city of um, Ephesus. Pergamon itself has a large library which runs till the third century AD. So here we have um, a Pergamon with the second largest library in the world at that point. And then we have um, Ephesus with the third largest library. So this whole area then has this um, revival in the second century, well, it, it, it was never really dead, but really a cultural revival that we can see in literature and then um, in, in building works, beautiful, splendid buildings, temples um, and more, um, which actually happen under the um, Empress Trajan and then Hadrian, uh, but also Marcus Aurelius. So um, it is not um, a, an unimportant province in that time at all, um, but it is perhaps for a different reason than than initially um, an important province. So, when after the second century, um, there are various sort of um, reasons why then this province is perhaps not as important anymore. We know that it was split into smaller units um, in the third century, and um, it is not entirely clear how, but it seems to be that this also meant that the great um, time is over. We have um, the Antonine Plague, which didn't help, which definitely put uh, an end to um, um, a lot of people's lives and, and, and prosperity. Um, and um, yeah, so towards the end of the third century, the province is just not as important anymore and really falls into small pieces, if you wish. At least this is what it looks like um, to us. Um, what actually happened on the ground, we, we don't know, but from the evidence we see, it seems to be that the province is just not as important anymore at that point. And um, I, ha I have a question that came up uh, in my mind a, a couple moments ago and it might be the uh might be a cl the closing question we'll we'll uh we'll, we'll we'll see and it's kind of an odd spot to ask this question but i want to get it in there anyways because i think it's relevant um and you may have to infer a bit for this for this answer but why do you think rome made this territory 
a province. And what I'm getting at with this um, question is that there are times um, when uh, Rome seemed to have a lot of um, control, if you will, over certain areas, but didn't make it a, a province. Um, uh, Mauritania with uh, Cleopatra Cellini um, II, as you know, was raised in, in Rome and then, and then her and Juba II was sent, sent off to rule in Mauritania. There's uh, King Herod um, of Ju Judea. Um, so there seems to be these instances when Rome didn't, didn't make it a province. And uh, as I was kind of mulling that over, do you think it was a case of this area was so disparate with different, um, probably a lot of different in indigenous um, groups that there wasn't, there didn't seem to be one uh, heir, if you will, that, that could just come in and, and um, reign in this, in this area? Do you think it was, it was, it was that? Do you think that this province was so wealthy that it was more interesting perhaps to, to Rome. So they wanted to put more resources and, and attention to it. Um, some, some version maybe of, of combination of both something else. What do you, what do you think? I think you, you're right. I think it is probably a combination of, of all of those. I mean, it is a fairly large province. It is quite diverse. So it is more difficult perhaps to, to keep an eye on, so to speak, if you, if you leave someone else in charge of it. However, there was also not the person in charge of it. So when Attila's the third, um, bequeathed it to the Romans. Um, the question here would have been, if there had been an able um, king after that, perhaps it would have been more a situation of a client kingdom and not necessarily a province just yet. Um, however, as you said as well, it is quite a um, wealthy province and it's one that you would like to be in charge of. So there's also personal interests here in the province, as we can see uh, with some of the governors, um, whether legal or illegal, um, that they would um, seize the assets of the province um, and someone like um, Mark Antony, who we haven't really talked about, but when he he sort of looked after Asia as part of his um, war against Octavian, um, he was there worshipped as a god, and he was sort of treated like a um, yeah, like a god, like a, like a monarch. So the idea of their um, you know being so obedient in a way to 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 Rome's um, yeah um, generals. Um, might have helped here as well to 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 make the Romans think that this is perhaps a very a fairly easily um, governmentable is that a word um, uh, province. So yeah, I think all of these might have played a role here. And Mark Antony met Cleopatra the seventh either either in in the province or near it right yeah they certainly yes. certainly met do you know where they where they met by chance would it would have been technically in the in the province or outside i think it, it was in uh, was it in bithynia i think i'm not entirely sure i need to look it up um but yeah you're right so they definitely met outside egypt and in in part of asia minor and um yes yeah, so they um this also shows, I mean, the connections, this is the other thing with Asia Minor, you have the connection to Mesopotamia. And obviously, there's something we haven't really talked about. But what you need to keep in mind is that beyond that will be the Parthian Empire and the Parthians give um, the Romans a lot of grief for a very long time, um, for several hundred years in that period and beyond. 
So um, having Asia Minor here as the entry point into Asia is, is crucial, is really important to the Romans from a, from a, um, a geographical point of view. And uh, your friend, Professor Richard Alston, um, actually had brought up the Mark, Mark Antony and Cleopatra the Seventh, and 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 uh, as you know, R Richard um, highly recommended you for the for the show. So that's that's uh, part of, part part why we're big part why we're having this conversation uh, today. How we actually met. Um, uh, Professor Alston was on the show. Um, uh, he's been on the show four times now, um, and uh, oh, oh yeah, and always always enjoyable ch chatting with uh, with with uh, Richard and. Uh, and yeah, he had he actually brought up. So we did Mark Mark Antony, uh, Mark Antony's life, and uh, he had brought up the the meeting of Mark Mark Antony meeting Cleopatra. So that that was part of that uh, part of that episode. It's it's incredible how all these uh, when you when you get into these conversations, how there's so much interconnected, right? When you're dealing with the uh, the Mediterranean basin. Absolutely yes, absolutely yeah. It's all one big family in a way. <laughs> it was a true delight, Julieta to uh, chat with you today. Thank you for coming on the show. Thank you very much, Andre. Thank you. So again, everybody, the couple books that I mentioned at the start of the episode that I'll mention again, uh, Dr. Steinhauer uh, is author of Religious Associations in the Post-Classical Polis, and she is uh, working on a new book. She's a co-editor of uh, it's forthcoming beneath the surface renegotiating gender agency that is uh, scheduled for release in 2022. So I'm going to drop a link to the uh, first book, the the former that I mentioned, uh, and I'm going to I'll update the show notes later on when the other book becomes available. So I'll drop drop links um, as uh, I'll drop a link to the first one. I'll drop a link to the second one as it becomes available in the show notes on the IthacaBound.com's associated subpage to this episode. Julieta and everybody listening, as always, wishing a marvelous journey. Bye for now. Bye. Hey again. If you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe to the podcast, and I wish you a bountiful rest of your day. Bye for now.